So it's, it's great to be here with Hearing the Voice. This is a project very close to my heart, and it's just a pleasure to, to, to be here. So let me begin with a, young, with a woman that I know who took her degree at a pretty decent university. And then to stay in the area, she found that the only job she could get was one of those gas station, you know, 7-Eleven grocery store jobs. She had the early morning shift. She didn't like it. She didn't like the people who came in early in the morning. And one morning, she said, this woman came in and she looked like she'd been up all night. She looked as if it had been rough. She threw her stuff on the counter, two packs of Miller Lite, some cat food and a food product of some sort, donuts, I think. And she looked at me and she said, hey, can you get me a packet of a carton of cigarettes? And I'm thinking, excellent. This is what I want to be doing with my life. So I turned around, rolled my eyes, and started thinking my judgmental thoughts. In that moment, I literally heard the voice of God say to me, do not judge this woman. I have created her in my image, and I love her. And poor woman, I almost fell over. I'm trying to give her change, and, like, and I'm like, whoa, the voice of God spoke to me. I have been changed ever since. Martin Luther King, 1965, the winter of the Montgomery bus boycotts. Um, He'd gotten a death threat that morning. And at midnight, he found himself at his kitchen table. And he prayed. And at that moment, he says, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as if I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. So what do we make of these experiences? I'm comfortable to think that the ultimate source of them may be God. I don't think that's the kind of question, whether God shows up or not, that a social scientist is qualified to answer. But I do think that a social scientist can ask, why do some people have these experiences and others don't? Why do some groups of people, why are they more likely to have these experiences than others? And the answer I'm going to give this evening is that some of this has to do with the way that you think about your mind. So this is the famous uh, false belief task. Everywhere in the world, psycho it's developmental psychologists note, kids more or less the age of three develop the ability to say that other people have beliefs, desires, and intentions that may be different from their own. And this is the experiment that demonstrates that. This is, this is an experimenter with a toddler and a third party, who in this case is Bert. And together, they hide a toy. And then the, then the experimenter takes the third party away. And together, the experimenter and the toddler hide the toy in, in a second hiding place. The experimenter brings back the third party and says to the kid, so where do you think Bert thinks that the toy is hidden? Very young children point to the place where the toy actually is. Older children know that other people may have beliefs formed by their experience that might be different from their own. And so they point to the first hiding place. They have developed what developmental psychologists call theory of mind. But note that what they've developed is the capacity to attribute beliefs, desires, and intentions. The word mind is the word that we use for the container of those beliefs, desires, and intentions. And one of the things that anthropologists have know is that when you move from social group to social group, the nature of that container 
begins to shift. And so a number of us have begun to ask the question, is that shifting container, does that matter to anything? And the answer that I'll give is that it matters to the way that you experience God and the likeliness with which you, you will identify the voice of God. So what I'll do this afternoon is to make three claims, and I'll talk us through those claims, and then I'll come back and I'll present some data that I've gathered over the last few years. So these are the claims. That faith requires effortful attention, that in many ways this effortful attention is an attention to the mind, that attending to mental events shapes mental experience, and I'll suggest that as a result, different cultural invitations to attend to the mind in different ways should affect the mental experience identified as the experience of God. So, faith requires effortful attention. This is a kitchen calendar quotation from uh, the great Catholic monk Thomas Merton. Just remaining quietly in the presence of, of God, listening to him, being attentive to him, requires a lot of courage and know-how. This is the kind of thing that Christians say all the time, that they go to church, they seek to be Christ-like, to be godly, they get into their car, they drive home, and they yell at their kid. It's like, how can, you know, and it's so frustrating for them. They want to be Christ-like, and it is hard to keep God in mind enough to, to, be, att to be attentive to the kind of Christian that you want to be. In many ways, this effortful attention is an attention to the mind. Prayer is an act of attending to your mind. The central act of prayer is paying attention to inner experience, to thoughts, images, and the awareness of the body, and treating those sensations as important in themselves rather than as distractions from the real business of living. You think about your thoughts when you pray. And often what you're doing is shifting your attention from the annoying, whinging, irritating thoughts you're having about other people to loving, to being grateful, to adoring. So this is one of my subjects in Chicago where the winters are even worse than they are in Durham. She's describing her experience of praying and she's saying like, it was like icy rain and gray and cold and it was sleety. And what does she pray? God, I praise you that it stops snowing and it's not accumulating and that the streets aren't icy. You shift the way that you, you are attending to your thoughts. Some Christians attend to their mind even more earnestly. So evangelical charismatic Christians, the kind of Christians that I've studied most recently as an anthropologist, seek to experience God as a person. I mean, they know that God is God, but they also seek to experience God as a person among people and as somebody who will talk with them, who will respond to them. And they pick up what God says to them in their mind. They come into churches like this and they, they, they learn that the mind isn't private, but that thoughts and images and sensations that they might have, one might have understood as self-generated actually are God speaking. When I was studying the, these Christians, I came to think of this way of thinking as developing a new theory of mind. Just to give you a feeling of the way that people talk about this. This is a woman who's explaining praying, and she says, when people were praying over me, and I, I'm just receiving it, 
And all of a sudden, I, I hear, go to Kansas, which is where her parents lived. Because I was debating whether to go to Kansas, but I hadn't been thinking about it within a 24-hour period. It makes you want to say, where did that come from? So how do you know that it's God speaking to you? How do you discern that this is God rather than your own random thought? People talked about this in a lot of different ways. They would say that, well, you see whether this is the kind of thing that God would say. So a pastor once said to me, you know, if, if you think that God is telling you to jump off of a bridge, that's not God. They say that you feel peaceful when God speaks to you. You feel a certain way. They talked about testing it against other things that might be happening about in their life. But one of the things they always said is that the thoughts that are good candidates to come from God are thoughts that are spontaneous, that stand out in your mind, that they're louder than other thoughts, they capture your attention. And one of the things that I saw is that thought has a texture. We don't often think about thought that way, but your thought does have a texture. You do have certain thoughts that are more poppy than other thoughts. And these are the kinds of thoughts that count as, as the thoughts that you should discern to be likely to be the presence of God. Attending to mental events shapes mental experience. These are people hearing, the, hearing God. So when my Christians pray, when the evangelical charismatic Christians that I knew pray, what they're doing is using what you would call their inner senses. In fact, I came to call this inner sense cultivation. So sometimes they're, 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 they're experiencing themselves as standing in God's throne room. And they want to, to feel that their cheeks are hot with the power that comes off from the throne. They're going for a walk with God. And they want to have a back, to represent in their minds, in their mind, the back and forth dialogue they might experience with God. They're sitting on a park bench. Maybe they're cuddling with God. And they want to experience God's arm around their shoulders. They're using their imagination to do something that they do not take to be imaginary, but which they must use their imagination to represent. You can't see God. God's invisible. So you've got to use your inner experiences. And so what these people would do would be to use the resources of their imagination to represent what could not otherwise be represented. This mode of practice you find in Christianity, you find it in Kabbalah, you find it in shamanism, you find it in different kinds of meditations. This is a very common kind of, of spiritual discipline. And one of the things that I saw as, as an anthropologist of evangelical Christianity, and for that matter as an anthropologist of magic, is that people who were good at this stuff, people who loved to pray, they would change. They would say that they had sharper mental images, which is kind of striking because it's not the kind of thing that you say to persuade, the, just to persuade somebody else that they're, you're pious. They seem to have sharper mental images. They would say that the thing that they had to imagine was more real to them, that God felt like more of a person to them. And I noticed that they reported more voices and visions. They reported more sensory events in which the invisible other seemed to speak to them or seemed to appear to them or in some, in some sense showed up in their life. Well, that's what I saw from my ethnography. 
And when I was presenting this data to a room full of psychologists and people in medical school, they told me that I had anecdotes and not data. And so I ran an experiment. I got 130 people into my office. And we gave them computer exercises. We sat them in front of, we sat them in front of the computer to, to look at the way they were using their mental imagery. We gave them standardized surveys. And then we interviewed them for an hour or more. And then we randomized them into lectures on the gospel or to inner sense cultivation encounters with the scripture in which people had the opportunity to engage with God and to experience God as talking back. We never used God's words. We gave them space to encounter God if they chose. We sent them out for a month. The rule was half an hour a day, six days, six days a week for four weeks. Brought them back, sat them in front of the computer again, talked to them, gave them standardized uh, questionnaires. And it turned out that the folks in the prayer condition were more likely to report that they had sharper mental images. They said they had more sense of God's presence and more sense of God as a person and they reported more unusual spiritual experiences, more of these voices and visions. So what do I mean by that? This is Augustine who famously converted when he heard a voice that said, tolo lege, take it and read. And he was able to leap over his stumbling blocks and become the kind of Christian he wanted to become. I call these events sensory overrides because the word hallucination sometimes makes people anxious. These are moments in which, the, in effect, your sensory experience overrides your sensory st stimulation. These moments in, among the Christians I've been spending time with, and in many other people, uh, for folks who are not psychotic, for folks who do not meet criteria for a mental illness, these events are pretty darn common. So if I were to give you a survey, by the numbers, roughly half of you would say that you, you, would ha you would at one point heard a voice when you'd been alone. When people report what they hear, typically what they, repeat, what they hear is, is, is brief. They, can re they, can, they typically report no more than four to six words. Typically, although a lot of people have these, these experiences, when I talk to them, they can only remember one or two events. It's not like they remember these events multiple times during the day. What they experience is often startling, but not negative. I've spoken to people who said that they were driving, they were in their car, and God spoke up out of the back seat and said, I will always be with you. They were pretty startled. They pulled over to the side of the car, uh, side of the road, and then they wept with joy. In these events, in my experience, there's sort of a, an experiential zone so that um, some people are very clear that God spoke to them in their mind. They're absolutely sure that it's God and it absolutely was in their mind. And some people say, I, hear, I heard God's voice and it was, it's, it was just like your voice. It was just as clear. I knew exactly where God was, was speaking from. A lot of other people are like, I know it wasn't in my mind, but I'm not sure where it was in the world. I'm not even sure whether it was in the world. I'm just sure that it wasn't in my mind. They're more common under, certain, under some circumstances rather than others. These events are more common between sleep and awareness. They're more common with expectation if you think that God is likely to speak with, to you. They're more uncommon if there's intense emotion, if somebody is isolated. And they're very common among people who have lost somebody else. 
So as many as 80 or 90% of a group of people will say, that a group of people who have lost somebody that they have loved, will say they have seen, heard, or felt them in the months after the, after the loss. What the scientific literature tells us about these events is that judgment can change the event. What I take the literature to argue is that a string of, a string of words passes through your mind. And you very quickly, in a micro moment of attention, you say, Does this, did this string of words, did I generate this? Or did somebody else generate this? Or is this a thought that I have? Or is this a percept? This is, is this something that I perceived from the world? We know that to some extent these judgments are based on cues. And the amount of sensory information in that string of words may influence the way people make a judgment. And we know that there is, that people, the act of judgment can make the word, that the words feel more sensory, feel more as if they were perceived. So what this body of literature teaches us is that to some extent there's learning involved in making these judgments. We're usually very good at distinguishing between thought and percepts. We're not uniformly good. And we're not, all, we're not good all the time. And there are events that the literature suggests in which we, we shift our judgments. The way that I've come to talk about this is as a story of what I'll call cultural kindling. That the mind affords us many ways of paying attention to events. The thoughts have qualities. They can be more or less loud, spontaneously, spontaneous, familiar or unfamiliar, full of sensory information, or, or, or thin. And I want, to th I want to suggest that in moments of micro-attention, that our judgments may shift in whether we judge an event as coming from the inside or the outside, or whether it's ours, or whether it was generated by somebody else. And what I want to ask this afternoon if you are in a culture which is in which people are, you are more aware of the mind, this can't be 611, 615. Okay, yes, okay. Um, if you're more, we're all hearing this, <laughs> just so you know. So the question I want to ask is whether, if you're more aware of your mind as a mind, are you more likely to generate events that could be judged as external, as in fact internal. So now I want to tell you about um, going to three different parts of the world um, in which I knew from the ethnographic literature people thought about the mind differently. I was in the United States. One of the things we know about the United States is that we in the United States, and arguably in England, we think that our inner experience is really, really important. In the United States, we hired battalions of people whose job it is to help us think about our thinking, to help us have to come to terms with our thinking. We call them psychotherapists. We are, we Anglophone folks are unusual in this degree of attention to our inner experience. We know from the ethnographic literature that in India, people are a little less attentive to the personal importance of their own inner experience. There are fewer psychotherapists in India. 
but we know from the literature that people are highly attentive to the inner experience of other people, that juniors know that they should know what, what seniors are thinking, that juniors know that seniors, what seniors think about what the juniors think might be more important than what the juniors are actually thinking. People are highly dependent in this interdependent world. And one of the things we know about Ghana is that no matter who you are, but no matter what you believe in Ghana, you're likely to know people who believe that there are witches, that, some, that there are some humans who are able to use their mind to just affect other bodies directly. And so the, not only is the inner, inner stuff less important socially, but you know that there are people who are able, who at least believe that they're able to use their anger and envy to hurt other bodies directly. So I went to three, three similar churches in this part of the world, to churches that were more or less middle class, more or less that had English-speaking services. I did all the work in English. They're high-tech. Their pastors speak internationally. In all of these churches, people take God to be a friend who will talk back. These are all new charismatic evangelical churches. And in this work, I had 34 interviews with folks in the church that I knew very well in, in California, one of these new evangelical uh, charismatic churches that I'd studied. And in Accra, I talked to 20 people who were committed Christians, not, but not the pastor. And in Chennai, I talked to 20 people who were committed Christians, but also not the pastor. And I asked them a bunch of things about the way they experienced God and God's voice. I asked them about how they prayed, about how God spoke to them. I asked them for examples. And I asked them for all this William James kind of stuff. I asked them whether God had ever spoken to them in a way they could hear with their ears, whether they'd ever had an out-of-body experience, whether they'd ever had a vision, whether they'd had a sense of God's presence, whether they knew that God had shown up and whether they knew exactly in the room where God was located. A whole bunch of questions. I'm going to talk to you about only two of those questions this afternoon. First of all, how people reported God talking back to them in their mind. And then how people talked about God talking back in a way that they could hear with their ears. So how, does God talk, how did God talk back in these three different churches when he talked, talked, spoke back in the mind? And I asked, some people feel comfortable saying that they hear from God, that he communicates personally and directly to them, or that they feel that they're in dialogue or in conversation with him. Do you feel that you, have that you have had experiences like these? And I would say that in all three groups, people would say that God spoke back in three ways. They said that God spoke back through scripture. So they're, and that means that they're, they're, they're reading the Bible, they're reading through, and a text, a piece of a verse will pop out at them and really capture their attention. That's God speaking back through scripture. God spoke back through people. You think you don't know, you kind of feel like you need to go to a, for a walk. You don't know why you went for a walk, but you go for a walk. You run into somebody and that person says to you exactly what you feel you needed to hear. That person is an answer to your prayer, has given you an answer to your prayer. God is speaking back to you through people. And God will also speak back to you by placing those thoughts in your mind in the way that I described before. All right, so how do... Americans experience God speaking back. God speaks back in all of these ways to all these different, to peoples in all these different churches. But in America, I thought that people preferred to hear God speak back in the mind. 
So in Americans would place themselves in the narrative frame. They'd give me segments of back and forth dialogue. These are, these are two different people. God also speaks in a relaxed and colloquial way. Uh, this young man reports that it was like straight to the point, dude, and this is God, dude, you, need, you got, this is the only way. This is a, a woman who said, I felt I didn't hear that audible voice, but I felt God just say, you don't reveal yourself to me, I reveal myself to you. And I was like, really? I'm the onion, God said. I'm the onion. And I was like, wow. It's <laughs> another American. That one time, I mean, I just sat there for like half an hour, and I just went back and forth, and, and I said, is that really you, God? And he's like, yes, of course it's me, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Direct quotation. This happens in Chennai and Accra. But in Chennai, I thought that people preferred to hear God speak back through people. So in other words, I looked at the, at the transcripts and I said, what is the longest example? What do people really emphasize? This is a young woman who said, who's, uh, she's praying and uh, she, sa she says she doesn't, she doesn't know whether she's in the right place and, and I, I'm, I'm like, she says in the prayer, God, tell me where to go and I didn't have answers. And as she's praying for a couple of hours, somebody brought her food and somebody else comes by and asks her to pray for her. It felt, feels like the prayer really works. And then she says to me, describing her words to God, okay, God, so you're gonna give me the food I need? I don't have to pay for it. You're gonna bring people my way? Well, I might not know if I'm doing exactly the right work for you, but I'm in the right place right now. Here's another example. So, so for, this is a young man. For, for me, I would say like last Christmas, my wife wants me to go get something good, so, something for her. She wants a mobile phone. I was telling my wife, yeah, see, God is telling me this, just wait. They begin to set aside money and one of their friends can't pay her mortgage. And so they discover, okay, we're gonna use this money we've set aside for the phone. I'll, I'll, we'll give it to our friend. And then, then after they've done that, another friend of theirs has an extra mobile phone that, they, that, they give, that uh, he gives to them, and the husband gives it to, her, to his wife. And so the man says, okay, God, thank you for giving me this advice because God also speaks to us through some people. In Accra, again, all of this happens. But I thought that what I saw was that people preferred to hear God speak back through scripture. And in fact, they wouldn't present such a, mono, such a dialogic account as the Americans did. This is a, a man who said, so I was lying on my bed and then I started talking to him. It's awesome. I can talk to God the way, I, the way I'm talking to you. And as you're responding, even though I don't hear your voice, it comes. Sounds very American. Except he goes on to say, I'll ask a question and then he'll point me to a scripture I've not thought about. Somebody else says, you don't hear a sentence in your mind. You already know God's word. So he comes to confirm it to you. And people in Accra were more likely to talk about verses, identified verses dropped into their mind that would lead them to go back to the scripture. So I knew the Americans better than the other groups. What do the Americans do that they did not? The Americans did much more mental talk. They did more narrative engagement. They represented the back and forth when they talked to me. And they were much more comfortable using an imaginary, the, the veneer of imagination, blah, blah, blah. Like this, again, Chennai, Accra, people didn't sort of, make, didn't present God in a playful kind of way. 
Americans thought that this was odd. So again and again, they're willing to say, this is crazy, but I'm getting an image of. You don't need to call the white coats for me. It blew my mind. God's so weird. Again and again, they signaled to me that they thought that this act of hearing God in their mind, even though that this is what the pastor told them to do, they thought that this was a little peculiar and they needed to learn to be comfortable with the act of hearing God in their mind. And they are much more self-conscious that God's voice could be, their, could be their own thought. They are much more aware that they could be making a mistake. So here's somebody who says, closing my eyes, I'll get visuals of scenes and people. I try to then really pay attention. What am I supposed to know? Is this something I'm supposed to know or see? Somebody else. It's very clear, but sometimes I have to say, am I just making this up or is it God? Because I've misinterpreted things in the past. And so I thought I, I saw that the Americans had a sharp, clear sense of the mind as a mind. They thought that imagination was a good. They thought it was totally fine to use an imaginative flourish to represent their experience of talking with God. They were worried that he, he, hearing voices even in the mind was a sign that you were crazy. And they were aware that thoughts were unreliable much more strongly than, in my sample, I found to be the case in these other two settings. God's audible voice. So I said, now I'm going to ask you about some unusual experiences. Sometimes people experience them as spiritual, and sometimes not. Sometimes people hear what seems to be a voice when they're alone, sometimes when they're falling asleep or waking up, or even when they're fully awake. Has anything like that ever happened to you? So I would ask. And if somebody said yes, I always did these follow-up questions. Would you say it was outside your head? Did you hear it with your ears? Did you turn your, your head to, to, to see who was speaking? And then I would ask them whether God had ever spoken to them in a way they could hear with their ears. And again, I use these follow-up questions. With your ears, outside of your mind, turn your head to see who is speaking. In America, 35% of my sample said that they had heard God speak audibly at least once. Again, they mark it as odd. They're willing to say, this is just weird, I assume I'm nuts, that sounded odd, which didn't happen in the other settings. They were also much more comfortable with the question of inside the mind, outside the mind. Uh, they, it was very easy to ask that question in a way that it was a little more difficult to ask that question in English in Chennai or Accra. When God spoke, he was personal, he wasn't scriptural, and he was often conversational. In these examples, he actually corrects somebody's spelling at some point. She, she insists that there's a kind of sensory trace to this. You know, she's trying to figure out who to pray for, and he tells her it's Catherine with a C. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about this world, about this work, is that Americans don't talk very much about sleep. One of the things that I saw, I didn't expect this, but I, I came back from from Accra, and I began looking at the, the transcripts, and then I went back to my American transcripts. Sleep was not something that Americans dwelt on. It didn't seem to be a particular a place where they expected to, to meet God. 45% of my Chennai sample 
reported that they had heard God speaking to them at least once in a way that they could hear with their ears. In Chennai, there was no talk about being crazy. There was a much more kind of musical playfulness. People would talk about God seeing them awake, sometimes putting them to sleep. And they did something that I thought was really kind of interesting. They marked out a domain that was in the mind, but not but, 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 was not in the mind, but was not in the world. So they would ha they had all the uh, anthropologists call this a covert category. It's a category that people seem to use, but they don't name. They didn't describe it to me as something that was real. They would say things like, "Well, I, I didn't hear it audibly. It wasn't in my mind, but it was in my inner," or "It happened wide awake inside of me, strong." It wasn't audible as you are talking, but it was a song in the mind. Here's an example of the way somebody does this. And I didn't identify this as an auditory experience. Pastor Jay says, well, I was clearly hearing the voice of God saying that this question was put into my ears very clearly. So the anthropologist interrupts. Did you hear that with your ears? Yes, yes, with my ears. Oh, audibly. Audibly, I heard it. And then he gives me this three-sentence description, which I think is humanly unusual. Unless somebody's falling asleep, waking up, it's very unusual in my experience for somebody to, who is not who does not meet criteria for schizophrenia to tell, to tell you that they have heard out loud three sentences. And so I say, so did you like turn your head to see who was speaking? Or did you know that it was God? Did you just know? And he says, no, no. What I meant by audible is not a sound that's coming from the outside. This is why you use follow-up questions. I could clearly know in my spirit sense this question was coming through my mind, that I'm hearing a clearly stated question that's coming to my mind. In Accra, 55% of the sample said that they'd heard God speak once, at least once, in a way they could hear with their ears. There's no talk of being crazy in this sample, in, in this work, or as pe people describe this. God's voice was often linked to scripture, often to, to, the, to the Bible. Um, this kind of, ex what I thought of as this external presence in the world, is this biblical text. People were much more comfortable talking about auditory experience. There were a couple of people, three people, who were comfortable saying that God spoke to them audibly at least once a week or more often. And they seemed to have what I thought was a kind of default interpretation of God's voice as being more external. In other words, that if God, if they thought that God was speaking, and if it felt, if it really felt like it wasn't them, they kind of invited it to be more, invited it to be more sensory and more external. So here's an example, and how I'm talking to a young woman, and how common, commonly does it feel like it's almost auditory, or actually auditory, so that you hear it with your ears? And she said, as soon as I'm conscious of it, and I, the intrusive American, thinking like an American, said, it stops? And she said, no. She, she did this, as soon as I'm conscious, when I'm conscious that I'm hearing God speak, I hear it. And so then I want, I wanted, this is the way anthropologists work, I wanted to get this into the transcript. And so I said, oh, then it pops out and it becomes more auditory. And she said, yes. So I want to say that there's something going on here. 
35% of the folks in America say they've, had, they've heard God speak in an auditory way at least once, 45% in Chennai, 55% in Accra. They're small samples. But it was also true that I, I gave the undergraduates, English is the language of instruction in Accra and Chennai. And so I gave an undergraduates, over 100 undergraduates that I had never met, a series of questionnaires. And in those questionnaires was the question, have you ever heard a voice when alone? And in the United States, these are all in Christian colleges. In the United States, 44% said yes in response to that question, 56% in Chennai, and 90% of the Christian undergraduates in Chennai that I sampled said that they had heard, God's, heard a voice audibly at least once. So I think this is consistent with the following claim, that the more the social importance of internal mental experience, the less reporting of the externality of God's voice. So in some crude sense, I think that, that, that there's kind of a continuum between America and Chennai and Accra, with America representing a world in which at least the culture invites you to imagine that your inner experience is very important, that it's very socially salient, that you should, you should know what you experience and you should share that with other people. And at the other end is Accra, where the, the First, my first visit to Accra, I sat down with a uh, Ghanaian psychologist and I said, so how do people think about, their, about thinking here? How do they think about emotions? And she said, they don't. Clearly an exaggeration. And that, this is not a claim about psychological capacity. It's a claim about cultural importance and the observation that in a world in which witchcraft is a salient concept, sharing inner experience is not socially salient. And in this continuum, one of the things I think you observe is that I think I, I, I see a relationship between this cultural difference and the emphasis of the social salience of inner experience and the willingness to, to report some kind of external presence of God's voice or, or any voice. I think, that, I think that this suggests that the more aware you are of the mind as a mind, the more likely you are, there's a typo there, the more likely events that could be judged as external might be judged as internal. And my, my hand-waving model here is that thoughts that seem as if they might have been spoken by somebody else might be more likely to be judged in that micro-moment of attention by Americans, might be more likely to be judged as coming from an internal source, God speaking in the mind, rather than God speaking out in the mind and out in the world in a way that you can hear with your ears. I think we also see something else. I think that we see that the less people talk about sleep, the less they re report God's audible voice. I don't think this explains the phenomenon. I think that I, because not all of these events that are being reported are happening between sleep and awareness. But I think it is striking that again, I th in the transcripts, I'm seeing something of a continuum. In Accra, the transcripts are just richly full of references to sleep. 
people are, are very attentive to their dreams, very attentive to the extent. Sometimes when people would be telling me about a dream, and it took me a couple of sentences in to figure out that this was, an, this was about a dream rather than an event in the world. Americans super conscious of the difference between sleep state and awake state, and they don't take, talk about sleep state so much. I think that this also may pl play a role in the, in the different emphases, the greater willingness, you might say, for folks in Accra to report that God has spoken to them in a way that they could hear with their ears. I think they can also see, begin to see here a difference in the expected architecture of m mental or immaterial stuff. I think the United States, this is a cultural world in which we, there is this reveling in the difference between mind and world. This guy, George McCarry, actually blames John Locke for this and um, the English Enlightenment folks. But in any event, I mean, I, and I actually think that the British share this sense of this acute awareness of the mind as a mind, a sense of the sharp difference between mind and world, the immaterial and the material. I think in Chennai, what you see emerging is an implicit expectation of a tripartite mind-world relationship. The human mind, the world as it is, and the, that inner sense, that inner space between mind, mind, mind and world. And I think that if you see in Accra, this invitation to see more fluidity that's inherent in the concept of witchcraft and the idea that, that emotions can pass through the mind and into the world directly. So why do we care about this? I think we care about it for two reasons. First of all, I think that Americans, arguably Westerners more generally, have arguably an, an, an impoverished spirituality that sleep is about biological need, that the idea of internal events that are really external is weird to Americans. I suspect that Americans have a lot of events that could be identified as the presence of God that they don't attend to and that they let pass through their awareness and don't hear. The other thing to say, and this is, speaks more to the hearing the voice world, I have another part of my life where I fret about psychosis, and I, I'm not sharing that material with you tonight. But I think we have, we have evidence that when people are psychotic in the West, they become more distressed. And the only data to share with you tonight is this observation from the World Health Organization work that suggests that the course and outcome of psychosis is more benign outside of the West. And there have been three and a half waves of these studies that basically look at people when they fall ill, and they look at them two years later. And the folks in India look roughly 50% better on six different measures. And this work has been done and done and done. And I'm now participating in, the, in this work. And I think there really is something to this claim that the experience of at least schizophrenia, our most difficult psychosis, is, less, is, is at its least benign in the West. And I think that this has something to do with the sense of, of the mind as being this kind of fort, your private impregnable dome, that when, it's, when it seems like it's cracking, it's terrifying and you feel assaulted. But more profoundly, I think that what these events demonstrate how variable the sense of reality can be for people. 
What makes these events so powerful people is that, for people is that they feel real. And I think what they invite us to attend to is how possible it is to change our own sense of reality. You can't change it at demand, and it takes a certain amount of work. But I think what this suggests, uh, the, these practices people use, the way they pay attention to their minds, change what they take to be real in enough depth so it can have a real impact upon their lives. You might think about uh, this project, um, or you might think about this work as really being the story of the way we live with invisible others. And we all live with invisible others. The invisible, possibly the invisible other of God, people, <laughs> so it's a, a non-invisible, a non, uh, a message that we're being sent. So in any event, we all live with invisible others, people we've lost, people that we, we wish we knew more dearly. And this kind of, in, uh, and another way to tell this story is to say that there are tools that people use to enable them to experience invisible others more intimately. So thank you very much.